Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Welcome to Starbucks. My name is Ayn Rand. I wish coffee. Do you have some or not? We have all kinds. Right now we're featuring the smoked butterscotch latte. That sounds weak. I detest weakness. Give me something strong. Espresso? Fine. Can you say your name again? I have to write it on the side of the cup. Why do you have to do that? It's company policy. So you follow meaningless orders like a a collectivist pawn? No. See, the cup goes over to the barista, who makes your drink, and then he knows who to give it to. Why do you not make my drink? It's, well, right now I'm just not... If you do not make things, you yourself will have no value. You will be a toilet into which society urinates. That's not nice, and I still need your name. Ein. So that's A-N-N, or does it have an E at the end? No, that is Ann. My name is Ein. Ein? How do you spell that? A-Y-N. How is that Ein? You are the naked, twisted, mindless figure of the human incompetent. Well, whatever. Can I help who's next? No. You must not help who's next. Do you believe you have no right to exist unless you help who's next? Then you are a sacrificial animal. There will always be a next and another next. Your moral obligation as a human is to achieve your own well-being. Never mind, just listen to this radio program. And now a weakling who does not deserve love, Colin McEnroe. Uh, that's I didn't see the spit coming. That's Ayn Rand at uh, Starbucks. We could just stop right there. That could be the whole show, but it's not going to be the whole show. Ayn Rand is, I, I could say she's back in the news. In a way, she's sort of never out of the news, right? This is one of the remarkable things about this story uh, of a Russian immigrant who has managed to, long after uh, going into the grave, uh, has managed to influence American thought in remarkable ways. Um, and so whatever you think of her, it's kind of an incredible story. And here to help us understand uh, the story among uh, our several guests uh, is Jennifer Burns, uh, author of Goddess of the Market, uh, Market, Ayn Rand and the American Right. I guess I should say that one of the reasons we're doing this show is, yeah, there are a number of people in the Trump administration who have at one time or another uh, expressed enthusiasm for the ideas of Ayn Rand and even suggested that it's part of why they're doing what they're doing, whatever it is that they're doing. This includes Rex Tillerson, the new Secretary of State, and even Donald Trump himself has, uh, at least on one occasion, suggested that <clears throat> that Howard Rourke is kind of a model for him and that Ayn Rand is somebody he's read. So, uh, Jennifer Burns, uh, first of all, welcome to our conversation. Thanks for having me. And maybe we could just sort of begin with this, that, that this is a story that never dies out, right? I mean, s- probably in America this year, hundreds of thousands of copies of Ayn Rand books, probably the two tentpole novels you know, uh, representing the lion's share of it. Uh, uh, But hundreds of thousands of copies of Ayn Rand novels are still going to be sold, correct? That's true. She is a perennial bestseller, and she pretty much has been since her her, um, first major hit in 1943. That was The Fountainhead. And then she had another major hit in 1957 with Atlas Shrugged. So I think there's a sort of steady state of interest in Rand 
There also are cycles where she comes back into the news, she comes back into politics. And um, what's unusual about this cycle is often she comes into the news at a time of liberal dominance when conservatives seize her as uh, to sort of rally the, uh, their um, opposition. And now she's coming back into the news because of the surprising turn of events that's seen all three branches of government um, go to the Republican Party. Right. And so we'll kind of circle back to that a little bit and talk a little bit about what her ideas mean um, in terms of all that. So there are so many different Ayn Rands in a way. I mean, there's the person who pulps out who I said pulps. I didn't mean that who uh, pushes out these massive, you know, thousand page novels. And behind that, though, is a philosophy of objectivism. And it's a philosophy that, you know, it's interesting because we talk about her in terms of conservatism. We talk about her in terms of libertarianism. You do a marvelous job in your book of kind of sketching out her place uh, in those movements. But in a way, she doesn't have a perfect place in either movement, right? She's not exactly a libertarian. She's not exactly a conservative or a part of the right. She's an objectivist. Tell us what an objectivist is. So uh, Rand formulated her objectivist philosophy to uh, uh, meet the goal she really set for herself uh, young at a young age, and that was to provide an alternative way of thinking about right and wrong um, to what she saw as the dominant morality that, in her opinion, had given rise to things like communism, which, as um, someone born in Russia, she lived through the, the communist revolution, and she was in, implacably opposed to it. And she thought that really the traditional way of thinking about good and evil um, particularly and specifically Christian ideas, had led to communism because it said it was moral to place the needs of others above your own need. And so she thought if you were going to effectively fight communism and socialism, you had to have a new way of thinking about morality that put the individual at the center. And so objectivism has that as a goal and then um, spreads out from there into a variety of perspectives on um, government, state, um, proper human action, and so forth. So the other thing that, well, there's many things, but one of the other things that Ayn Rand was, was something that kind of doesn't really exist now, not in quite the same way. I mean, she was a public intellectual in a way that you know, was maybe specific to the time. Television was relatively young. It had maybe a slightly more open-minded set of thoughts about itself or who might go on. I mean, Ayn Rand used to go on the Johnny Carson show, I mean, which is sort of a, this mind-boggling thing when you think about it. But we want to give you a little sense of what it sounded like when she went on TV, which she did a lot. This happens to be uh, one of the earlier ones. It's with Mike Wallace in 1959. The powers of government are strictly limited. They will have no right to initiate force or compulsion against any citizen except a criminal. Uh, those who have initiated force will be punished by force, and that is the only proper function of government. When you say take the property of others, I imagine that you're talking now about taxes. Sam. And you believe that there should be no right by the government to tax. You believe that there should be no such thing as welfare legislation, unemployment compensation, regulation during times of stress, certain kinds of rent controls and things like that. That's right. I'm opposed to all forms of control. I am for an absolute, laissez-faire, free, unregulated economy. So, uh, Jennifer Burns... We picked that one. We could have just easily picked Tom Snyder, uh, her multiple appearances, I think, with Phil Donahue. As I say, she was on the Johnny Carson Tonight Show at least three times. What was that all about? Or I guess what I really want to know is I assume there were people 
who knew Ayn Rand from things like that, who had never read The Fountainhead or, or had started Atlas Shrugged and given up after 300 pages. Uh, I assume there are some people that she reached simply in, in her persona as this public intellectual. Yeah, I think uh, you're absolutely right. And she was actually um, not taken seriously by many intellectuals of her day simply because she would go on TV and she would stake out these very extreme positions. And she had a whole persona. Um, you know, she would wear a cape and she had a cigarette and a long holder and she had that um, tremendous Russian accent. And not insignificantly, she was a woman in a time when public culture and intellectual culture was dominated by men. So she was a very arresting figure um, that would definitely make you stop and notice and think. Um, and it's interesting, those very reasons why she was became a sort of figure of fun, and you can see with your Starbucks clip, it's still easy to, to make fun of her today, is one of the reasons she has lasted so long and been so influential because she provided a lot of different ways um, for you to come across her ideas, whether it was flicking through um, the boob tube or going to your local bookstore or finding an Ayn Rand club on campus. There are a lot of different ways to engage her ideas, and that's one reason they've lasted so long. I'm wondering about the reason why they took hold the way that they did. I mean, obviously a novel uh, is a great gateway drug. She's, from really the beginning to the end, very familiar with notions of showmanship. I mean, sure, her port of entry in many respects to American culture was, in fact, working in the movie industry. Uh, and she was an extra in a Cecil B. DeMille movie, and, and but, you know, then started writing screenplays and stuff like that. And then writing these novels. Still, these novels, they're, a, they're literally a big lift, you know? I mean, they're, they're big, chunky, blocky, heavy novels. And I'm assuming that one reason for their appeal you know, I mean, I think she really sort of ripens in the immediate uh, aftermath of World War II, which might have been a time when people were kind of asking themselves, well, what does it mean to be an American? What does it mean to be me? What does it mean to be alive? What's, what's this all about? The war's over. What now? Yeah, so I, I would say there's kind of two ways that she makes an impact or, or two ways to think about it. One is um, that she's talking about capitalism, um, free markets, you know, this idea of America that is already familiar to people, that is already um, something people are interested in. And so she's articulating a set of ideas that you might already hold or think are true or be interested in, but haven't really heard spelled out. So, so there's a sort of resonance of familiarity there. That's one part of it. The other part of it, if you read the whole novels and if you start to dip into the philosophy, it's a package deal that gives you an answer to literally everything from what the government should do to how you should think about um, choosing a life partner to what kind of art uh, is meaningful. And so especially for young people, that can be extremely meaningful. That search for answers seems like it's over when you encounter Ayn Rand. And there's a tremendous feeling of relief and dedication uh, when you feel like you found all those answers. Now, it often doesn't last. And so after a few years, people decide, maybe she doesn't have all the answers, or maybe I don't agree with all the answers. But because they've had that first intense experience of identification with the ideas and philosophy that she's explained, um, she stays with them. And so she becomes a sort of psychological and emotional experience as well as an intellectual experience. And again, I think that's one of the ways we can understand why um, you know, a woman who hasn't published a book in over half a century is still being talked about so intensely today. 
One of the things that you explore really effectively um, in your book, this is Jennifer Burns, author of Goddess of the Market, Ayn Rand, and the American Right, is that that, that psychological and emotional experience that the readers are having and the embracers of her thought are having is closely mirrored in her own life and the people around her. That objectivism and uh, all of its uh, fruits uh, were very much a part of the way that she was living. And of course, the thing that kind of emerged much later was that uh, she, she obviously had this coterie of people around her who were trying to live their lives according to her ideas and sit as close to her campfires they possibly possibly could. But what came out later was that, you know, this very attractive and charismatic young couple, uh, the Brandons, uh, were closest to her for a, a number of years and, and probably in many ways much closer to her even than her husband, Frank O'Connor. And it turns out Nathaniel Brandon was really close to her. I know we don't want to dwell too much on this story because <laughs> too much gets made of it, but uh, Jennifer Burns, I think we have to acknowledge it anyway. Yeah, it's absolutely part of her appeal. So, so as I said, she had this very arresting persona. She met the Brandons when they were young college students. Um, they were the, the type of uh, intellectually inquisitive seekers who found her um, ideas utterly compelling. And over time, she and Nathaniel Brandon became closer, and they embarked on a love affair. He was 25 years younger than her, and before it started, they sat down with their spouses, with his wife and her husband, and explained that they had fallen in love and asked for permission to have this extramarital affair, which was duly granted. Um, but it then became a secret from everybody else. So it started in this sort of transparent, rational way. It then was held as a secret. And um, for all Rand's claims to rationality, she was a very passionate, feeling person. And over time, the relationship between her and Nathaniel Brandon faltered, even as he became the public spokesperson, the public face of objectivism. And when she discovered that he had been carrying on an affair with another woman and, and not uh, telling her about it, the whole thing just blew up in a, a giant cataclysm. Uh, this was in the late 60s. It was sort of a, the classic 60s moment of everything falling apart all at once. And, um, you know, Rand really retreated into private life after that. But those ideas had been launched into the world, and they had been taken up um, by others. And, uh, you know, that, that coterie around her is, is, is a, an important part of the story, but it's not the whole story. No, not at all. Although there's kind, there's kind of a fascinating moment in your book where Brandon uh, wants to break it off, and they sort of can't because of objectivism, because there's this notion that emotions are the product of ideas, and that you know if he simply was tired of having sex with uh, Ayn Rand and didn't have these other feelings, that that in some way you know lasered back at objectivism, uh, because uh, the reason for him desiring her or for them desiring each other in the first place would have had more to do with ideas and less to do with our conventional notion of an emotional life. So yeah, I mean that's the piece of objectivism that I think has been most troubling um, is its emphasis on rationality. And it's the, the sort of fatal flaw in the whole system because Rand dedicated herself to individualism, but then she created a philosophy of rationalism that really said there was sort of one answer um, to a set of questions and one way to properly think if you followed this rational structure she laid out. So it had a way, even though it um, advanced individualism and independence of expecting that everyone who followed the philosophy would end up in the same place. 
thinking the same way and, um, you know, admiring Ayn Rand to the same degree. And so there wasn't room for what she would call contradiction, um, and we might just call the sort of messy ambiguity of life. Um, and Brandon, as the number one objectivist in the land, really struggled with this. He thought he rationally um, should have strong romantic feelings for Rand because he respected her so much as a thinker. Um, but he found himself drawn to uh, a very different type of woman, and he couldn't he couldn't face up to that because he thought it was a personal failing. So he struggled with that for many years, unfortunately at, at great cost to Rand, who, um, you know, would have been better off if he had told her, you know, five, ten years mm -hmm. earlier that, that the affair was over. It probably would have ended badly no matter what. But um, it dragged out for quite a long time because he felt himself sort of trapped in this objectivist prison. There's so much that I want to talk about. We're not going to have time. Uh, but I, I do want to talk about the – there's a glass ceiling that she starts to bump against uh, that you uh, lay out very well. And, and that is that there just isn't any room for God or religion in her philosophy system. And, and you sketch out uh, a growing uh, movement on the right uh, that has religion very tightly woven into it and the emergence – I think in particular, of another person, a public intellectual who knew how to use television to his advantage. That's William F. Buckley, uh, mm -hmm. a young guy. And, and there's a sense in which Rand's ideas can only go so far uh, because I mean, there's really literally no room for God or religion anywhere uh, in her understanding. Yeah, I would say that they that is particularly true in terms of the conservative movement. There's always going to be a tension, um, given that conservatism has to this date been very focused on religious traditionalism and supporting religious life. And then you've got a um, someone who believes very strongly in free markets, also a piece of the conservative coalition, but implacably hostile to religion. And so I think that has limited her appeal on the right, for sure. It does open some interesting possibilities for her being um, embraced by a sort of more modern, uh, I don't want to go as far as saying progressive, but some of her positions on social issues are much more mainstream now. Um, on the liberal side or the centrist side. So she was always um, pro-choice very early. Mm. Um, she favored drug legalization. Um, she was sort of a, a celebrant of a modern, cosmopolitan, forward-looking, um, high-tech uh, kind of lifestyle. And she, you know, she was implacably opposed to tradition or uh, religion or any sort of established social roles. So there's a way in which there's a sort of radicalism about her that can help her. Um, there's, again, another reason why she can persist so long, because she can fit in some ways um, with with a libertarianism, which samples from both the left and the right. And going back to you know today's politics, we have a Republican president who's paying lip service to traditional conservative ideas, but it seems pretty clear that he was fairly liberal on social matters for most of his life until he took up uh, the mantle of, of trying to run for the Republican Party uh, candidacy, and then then he was able to sort of say, oh well, well now I'm opposed to abortion, and now I you know I'm a believing Christian, but but it, it wasn't as deeply felt. Um, as has been the case with traditional conservatives. So then who is more plausibly Randian, Donald Trump or some of his appointees like Tillerson, Pudzer, and Pompeo, uh, or Paul Ryan, who you know used to make his aides read the book and now kind of uh, disclaims the whole thing? You know, I think Paul Ryan probably has the strongest um, grasp on, on Rand and how she saw her philosophy, although he has, like many a conservative, insisted it's compatible and can be wedded to Christian ideas. 
What I think the, the new Trump appointees highlight is another aspect of RAND that we haven't touched on so much is her celebration of the business leader, mm-hmm. uh, man or woman, as this sort of dynamic figure in society um, who pushes forward progress, um, who has good ideas, and who really needs to be given a free reign um, to develop new and exciting ideas and products and innovations and breakthroughs, and that government is only a drag on that type of person who she would call the creator. And so she was one of the few novelists and thinkers to really celebrate um, business people, not as greedy villains, which might be a typical Hollywood depiction, but as um, almost creative artistic types, sort of anticipating the way that we talk about Um, startup founders today and tech titans today. I mean, we think of people like Steve Jobs as very creative figures, almost artists. And that was not a way we thought of of business people uh, several decades ago, but it's something, it's it's a vision of business in American life that Rand has always promoted. So it's not surprising that people who've been very successful in business have always looked at Rand as sort of a cheerleader um, for them. Jennifer Burns, thank you for your immensely readable book, Goddess of the Market, uh, Ayn Rand and the American Right. Thanks for being with us. We're going to talk to somebody next who's not a fan of Ayn Rand, and then we'll end with somebody who is. I'm talking to Stephen Metcalf, host of Slate's Culture Gabfest. Uh, he's working on a book that we are all very excited about and awaiting eagerly, a book about the 1980s. Uh, meanwhile, uh, he's somebody who's written an awful lot about the intellectual life and foment uh, of this time period we're in right now with Ayn Rand. Um, Stephen, I guess I want to begin with the whole idea of Rand as a novelist. I mean, that's how she reaches people, not that she didn't write essays in nonfiction, but nobody ever reads that stuff. It's really kind of all about these these two novels. And maybe you could just say something about that. I mean, it's a little unusual to have a couple of big clunky novels be a gateway drug to uh, a way of thinking about government and, and the economy. That's a very good point. I mean, as a young woman devoured Nietzsche and did the most dangerous thing a young developing intellect can do, which is that she misunderstood him. And she took with her through all of her life an extremely schematic notion of what Nietzsche had said about the strong and the weak, about resentment, self-expression, and applied it in this really crude and nearly barbaric way to an uh, equally crude misunderstanding of American capitalism. And I don't think that that could possibly have worked within an abstract and theoretical mode of presentation, it only kind of works in the context of ridiculous, bodice-ripping, uh, you know, door-stoppy potboilers, which she, of course, wrote two of. And, you know, they can't stop selling in mass quantities. Uh, most people encounter them when they're very young and very impressionable. And they then misunderstand both American capitalism and Nietzsche at second hand, as it were, via Rand. But people take enormous sense of comfort from her worldview as presented in those novels. And um, it doesn't go away. And, of course, if you were to draw a Venn diagram, to the extent one could define enough to encircle Donald Trump's beliefs, 
cogently, but were to draw kind of a Venn circle around them and a Venn circle around Paul Ryan's, the overlap would certainly include Ayn Rand and may may even really be defined by the presence of Ayn Rand. Yeah, and I want to come back to that, but a couple of things first. I mean, there's been some much-breeded studies uh, starting around 2013 about the fact that when people read fiction, uh, it actually enhances, particularly children, it enhances their capacity for empathy. And it does seem as though Ayn Rand was trying to prove that wrong, you know, many (laughs) decades before the studies were actually done to write novels that would, in fact, incapacitate uh, one's sense of empathy. Yeah, I think that that's right. I mean, I, first of all, I, they're not good novels. I mean, I think it's very important to point that out, A. And then B, you know, someone, I can't remember who it was, said if an ass looks into a novel, an ass peers back out. <laughs> you know, a novel is not in itself intrinsically a magic antidote to uh, people's inherent lack of empathy, quite the opposite. I mean, the reason her novels are bad novels is the people in them are drawn so simplistically and according to such a crude, dualistic schema that they don't uh, have any basis in real human experience whatsoever. And she drew them that way to try to prove a series of very basic points about the relationship between the strong and the weak within a capitalist system. So it really, the novels are, are really more allegories than they are novelistic. They, they don't depict life in its confusion and nuance. They overorder the un- known universe into rigid categories that couldn't possibly exist in our own experience. People clearly go to them to make a confusing world much more comfortable. Um, and secondly, I think it's a way of making philosophically or metaphysically elevated one's own inherent lack of capacity for empathy. If you didn't bring that to her books, I don't know why you wouldn't find them on first pass completely absurd. Well, I mean, to take maybe a flawed analogy, you know, there are people who maybe have a casual relationship with Scientology and Dianetics and all all this kind of stuff. And then there are people who actually know L. Ron Hubbard and have sat at his feet. And one of the disturbing things that emerged as we got ready for this show, something that you knew, but I guess maybe this had never penetrated my consciousness or I forgot it, that Alan Greenspan was the latter sort of person. He sat at her feet and breathed secondhand smoke from her cigarette holder. That's exactly right. This is how I got interested in Rand in the first place, because of Greenspan, who, of course, was the chairman of the Fed. He was chair of the Fed during the time of uh, total apotheosis of of free markets, for which he was kind of the head cheerleader. When he was a young man, there are two facts about uh, Greenspan many people don't know. Uh, The first is that as a very young man raised by a single mother, uh, I believe in Washington Heights in New York City, went to a terrific public high school, extremely bright kid, uh, very, very gifted with numbers, but he had another real talent. He was a, um, a jazz uh, saxophonist, and he was quite good. And uh, he was good enough that he actually toured professionally with a very good band. And one day he went to Juilliard. I think he was still young. He was certainly still an adolescent. And he auditioned, and he played, and he was okay. And then the kid next to him auditioned, and it was that moment where he knew he wasn't going to be uh, a saxophonist because the kid sitting next to him who went next was Jerry Mulligan. <laughs> but he was good. He was really, really genuinely good and loved and revered jazz. But he started doing the books uh, for the band uh, and, and then became an economist, got a graduate degree, moved on. But the second fact about him is that in his post-jazz years when he was a, you know anonymous economist, uh, he entered the inner, inner, inner circle of Rand, uh, and was what was called an objectivist. This was this, this was what you were if you were a, a, a devoted follower of Rand, and became quite close with her. And she she had a 
interesting relationship with him. At first, he was very dismissive. Rand was a product of, of I mean, it, we could go on and on and on. I mean, it's incredible. But she was a product of both the Russian Revolution. She had her entire childhood snatched away from her by Lenin. So in one sense, her right-wing politics are well-earned. But she was also a product of Hollywood, which is where effectively she ended up as a young woman um, after leaving Soviet Russia uh, and started out as a screenwriter. And she had this simpleton's worship of the way people are supposed to look. Um, this, this completely guided her worldview. Um, and so if a man uh, looked even was even a kind of pathetic facsimile of Gary Cooper, then he was strong. And if someone looked like Alan Greenspan, he was weak. And so she took to calling him pejorative nicknames. And early on, he had argued with her a philosophical position whose conclusion was essentially, I, I can't know for certain that I exist. And so she would ask him for years on end, she would say, Alan, do you, do you know whether you exist yet? Um, and um, kind of mocked him, but at the same time... I think she called him the Undertaker, right? Wasn't yeah, that the one? Undertaker, oh, yeah. that's exactly right. He had this kind of, more, you know, as we all know, he kind of has this mortician vibe to him. Um, <laughs> but, um, but over time, she began to see that Greenspan was a way to enact her philosophy in the real world, because he was nothing if not a very patient political and social climber. Um, he uh, is a very presentable and, I, I think, absolutely brilliant uh, human being. And he got further and further and further. And at that point, you know, she certainly began to warm up to him. And one of the things I admire about Greenspan is his essential temperament was, at a, uh, was as a pragmatist. Though I think till the very, very end, when he made grave mistakes that helped sink the world econ economy, he was, he was also beset by abstract ideas about the power of uninhibited capitalism that really helped bring us all down. Now that brings us to the present moment. And first of all, I think it's probably worth acknowledging, at least on my part, maybe not on yours, that, you know, an effort to understand objectivism and, I mean, really, really understand it at the level of nuance is not something that I'm willing to do and to whatever extent well, well, I... Wait a second. You, you, you're saying it has nuance? All right. Well, <laughs> I'm assuming, I mean, just by based on word count, uh, I'm assuming... <laughs> There has to be some kind of nuance. But, I mean, uh, I'm assuming... Well, actually, let's start with Paul Ryan, because Paul Ryan probably actually has tried to think through objectivism and think through Ayn Rand. He's really crayfished away from her uh, in recent years, but we know in the past he, he said that she inspired him to go into politics, and for a while I think he was making uh, his staffers, uh, when hired um, as a prerequisite, read one of the novels. I think it might have been Atlas Shrugged, but I'm not sure... So here's a guy who really has sort of tried, in, in a way that I think we know that Trump would never do, to, to kind of master all this stuff. I, I'm going to ask you to look into the soul of, of Paul Ryan, uh, Dr. Strange style, just you know, astrally project right into him. I mean, to what degree is Ayn Rand a significant influence on the thinking of a man like this? Well, I, again, I, I can, in the case of Ryan, I can only speculate that uh, let me frame it a little more generally, and then and then we'll see together whether this whether Paul Ryan fits in with this theory. But you know, my feeling about Rand is that essentially she she emerged as an American novelist in the post-war years, right? It was I think the Fountainhead was either published or she turned in the manuscript days before Pearl Harbor. It coincided completely with the emergence of of what we think of as as post-war America, and the defining quality of those two novels, Atlas Shrugged and The Fountainhead, taken together, is that they exalt a form of American capitalism that was going out of date. I mean, it, it really had disappeared. You could argue its heyday was 50 years in the past, e 
even when Rand was writing The Fountainhead, much less in the decades in which they became, you know, objects of cultish uh, obsession. And so in this specific respect, Fountainhead is about an architect who heroically builds buildings, and Atlas Shrugged is about railroads. These, you know, you'll pardon me for saying these extremely phallic, extremely Mm -hmm. object-oriented, concrete modes of capitalist heroism as driven by Gilded Age robber baron types. So this was hugely anachronistic. Um, I can guarantee you that the vast majority of the millions of people who bought these books in the decades after 1940 and 1950 were not themselves a part of that economy. They were part of the American economy as it had developed in the post-war decades, which was increasingly a service economy and one about which Americans had increasingly high levels of anxiety and a specific kind of social anxiety. I mean, tract after tract after tract from academic sociologists in the post-war years was about how Americans were becoming feminized, soft, other-directed, and they were losing essentially their masculine hardness. And these books are clearly addressed as an antidote to that. Now, whether Paul Ryan has issues about his own masculinity, I, I can't really answer that. But I do think that within these books, there's a vision of a renovated America in which everyone has a role, everyone knows their role, everyone worships exactly the same kinds of success, and that success is completely concrete, completely objective, uh, universally recognizable. And the only people who exempt themselves from that system can be ipso facto labeled weak or sick. And I don't see how you can find those books attractive, much less use them to order your worldview, unless those are essentially the conclusions that you're trying to reach. Okay, you talked about those two Venn circles, you know, in the way that they overlap. And so we talked just a little bit about Paul Ryan's uh, Venn circle and the part of it that's Ayn Rand. Now with Trump, I'm I'm assuming that as you, you know, who knows whether Trump has read these books. He says he has, and that Howard Rourke speaks to him. And, and certainly as he's lined up this kind of legion of superheroes to, to join his cabinet, you know, you're starting to see Rex Tillerson, whose name even sounds like, you know, a kind of an Ayn Rand uh, character, and, and, and Andy Puzder and uh, Pompeo, I, I think they all say that they uh, are Randians to some degree or other. Uh, and what, is, what do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, I think you could look at the, uh, you know, look at the, look at the most obvious answer, which is that, you know, Trump prides himself for being a builder, a guy who made things. He built buildings. He's uh, obsessed with very simple, perspicuous binaries. You know, my building is bigger, yours is smaller. My ratings were higher, yours were lower. My wife is hotter, yours is less so. You know, it's not a huge leap of imagination to see why he's attracted to um, Ayn Rand, who who writes very much in that style. But I would look also at the flip side, the kind of um, anxious underbelly of that, you know, one of the things that Ayn Rand said she detested more than anything were the sons of millionaires. She hated the idea. Uh, to, to, let's give her credit. She was at least philosophically consistent on the score. As much as she hated a welfare cheat, she also hated someone who was uh, on the dole of their father. She, you know, the, the, it used to be a huge fact in American life uh, in the Gilded Age, actually, about the, what was called the second generation problem. And the problem was we lionized these heroes of capitalism, most often because they came uh, up from absolutely nothing, the Horatio Alger, the self-help myth. The problem was they made a ton of money and then they gave it to their kids, and their kids became soft and feminized. So the original expression of anxiety over American femininity actually 
does come from about 50 years earlier. It's just, there's a ton of money sitting around. It gets inherited by a bunch of people. They become sloths, feminized sloths. Well, what did Trump do? Trump inherited uh, an enormous amount of money if he'd stuck it in an S&P fund uh, and never bothered to try to get on TV or build ugly buildings. He'd be richer probably by several, it is alleged, he'd be richer by several orders of magnitude than he is today. So he himself suffered from the second generation problem. And then the second funny soft, anxious underbelly about Donald Trump is that in fact, he doesn't really build buildings. Um, he, it's not that he's never done it. Uh, he did do it, it, it appears, early in his career. But over time, uh, he didn't build anything at all. In fact, he licensed his name. He became a brand. He became the very kind of service economy ephemera um, that Americans have been anxious about since the 1950s and that has turned them to Ayn Rand for a kind of compensato- compensatory and kind of even pseudo-fascist uh, glamour of the, the hard and the real. So I, I, I think you can peer a little further into Trump's psyche than into Ryan's. And you can see an enormous anxiety, I think, or a considerable anxiety about having been a rich kid and being something so airy-fairy as a brand. So uh, one last question for you, Stephen Metcalf, uh, which is, um, and I sort of already know your answer, and it's very, it's very intriguing to me, knowing a little bit about who you are, too, which is that, you know, ordinarily, I think we, the one marketplace that we believe maybe works is Oliver Wendell Holmes' marketplace of ideas. You know, ideas get in there, they scrabble around, they fight for supremacy, and we, we think that good ideas went out over bad ideas most of the time. But if you could blink your eyes and make Ayn Rand's works go away and never have existed, um, would you do that? You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna say yes, and I, but I'm gonna heavily qualify it. I don't know that there are very many other uh, writers or ideas that I would want to make go away, but I think Rand has materially impoverished the American imagination, and in a persistent and insidious enough way, too many people who've attempted to foist a totally unrealistic notion of governance and, and human behavior. On, on actual American politics took her too seriously. And I just want to give you one concrete, what I think of as at least a concrete enough example. You know, there was a, a period in the 1990s when Alan Greenspan was widely regarded as the, the single most powerful person in the world, a Randian. Um, at that moment, the market that he so believed in was giving him signal after signal after signal that it had become uh, unattached from fundamental values one of which you could argue was the minting of fresh billionaires on a daily basis who were making money off of other people's money. And that could have been a signal to a person who didn't believe that making a billion dollars from nothing in 18 months was a sign of superhero powers on the part of a visionary capitalist. That might have been a signal that something was badly wrong. And that person who hadn't read Ayn Rand because Ayn Rand had been retroactively blinked out of existence by Stephen Metcalf, mm-hmm. that person as Fed chief might have done something about the irrational exuberance uh, rather than just giving it a name and might have prevented an enormous amount of economic dislocation um, that affected uh, millions and millions of Americans who'd never heard of uh, Ayn Rand and uh, don't care that she uh, uh, existed. Stephen Metcalf, so great to talk to you. Uh, it's such a pleasure, Colin. I love coming on your show. The Ayn Rand Fund is not over yet. Coming up is William Thomas from the Atlas Society right after this. You say the government shouldn't feed the poor. Why should you have to pay taxes anyway? It's cold, cold. 
I bought the Ayn Rand cookbook. You bake a cake, and if you cut corners on the recipe, you have to blow it up. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Who is Rusty Fisher? He's our intern. The part of Bill Curry was played by Marty Greenspan. Be sure to visit the Colin McEnroe Show page on Facebook. And now, back to Colin. We wanted to make sure that uh, someone more sympathetic to Ayn Rand uh, had the final word on this show. Uh, That person is going to be William Thomas, lecturer in economics at the University of Albany and director of programs and senior scholar at the Atlas Society. He's the author of several books, including Radical for Capitalism. Uh, First of all, welcome to the conversation, and I I hope you're not chewing your paw off uh, after Stephen Metcalf's diatribes. Well, he uh, did engage in a lot of ad hominem, but no, I'm fine. Thanks. And I'm glad to be on the show. All right. So um, maybe uh, in your own words, uh, can you give us a 60 second distillation of, of Ayn Rand's philosophy, assuming that maybe we haven't done that good a job, uh, at least by your lights, in summing it up? Sure. Ayn Rand's philosophy is basically the idea that human beings are noble beings and that pursuing their happiness in life is a key is the key basis for ethics that people ought to be objective and use reason in dealing with reality, and that we ought to be free to pursue our lives and deal with other people by free interaction and trade and not be coerced when we deal with other people. You know, one one thing we've been kind of flitting around is the whole question of the uh, immediacy of her ideas uh, in the present moment. As you watch Donald Trump assemble his cabinet, as you watch Donald Trump roll out some of his policies, do you recognize Ayn Rand in there anywhere? It's really hit and miss. It's amazingly hit and miss. We, you can recognize Ayn Rand in that the cabinet is being filled with business people mm-hmm. and successful business people. And in that sense, business achievement is being honored. Mm-hmm. That's good, I guess. In the background, the Trump administration is talking about uh, reducing regulation and freeing up the internal U.S. economy. Mm-hmm. And so politically, I guess that sounds good to me. And he's got some horrible things. He's horribly anti-immigration. There's a whiff of racism there that uh, is awful. Uh, it's, you know, a gosh, of his, some of his pronouncements well, recently, I, I would assume uh, that are disturbing, and yeah. his own character is a bit dis- is disturbing. But he I, I would assume that a Randian in particular would be bothered by the things that do seem like government interference, tariffs, perfect, uh, protectionism, ways in yeah. which Trump sees the government's intrusion as a useful way uh, of controlling results uh, on the market. Yes, exactly, exactly. That's against the laissez-faire policy that Rand advocated, and that objectivists and libertarians advocate. And as an economist also, it just makes me sick to see the president doing this. It's like the early 1930s again. Do we really need to do the Smoot-Hawley tariffs all over again? One thing I, you know, I heard from a uh, former objectivist today who, who made an interesting observation, which is that when you're young and you read Ayn Rand, you are particularly disposed, generationally disposed at that moment, to the sense that there's sort of a black and a white and no gray, that uh, that Rand is so uncompromising about so many different things, and that there's something very appealing about that when you're young. As you get older, you get grayer, and the world gets grayer. You just notice shadings uh, and, and relativisms uh, all over the place. I don't know. How does that work for you? you you're, you're a full-grown adult prospering in an academic environment. Um, have you had to to file down your Randianism at all in order to do that? No, in the sense that 
the core ideas that Rand is talking about are just the ideas of the Enlightenment taken seriously. I mean, do you think it's wrong? Do you think when it comes right down to it, you shouldn't be trying to live to be happy? Do you think we shouldn't try and be objective? And then if we want to talk about economic liberty or political liberty, that's a whole different discussion. That's further down the, down the trail. But I think those things are just so uh, fundamental. I mean, there's a lot of nuance and subtlety in there, but that's the basic. I think one of the things that has happened, however, is that Rand, when she was alive, had a kind of cult of personality around her. Mm -hmm. And what music you listen to was part of it. You know, Rand had declared Mozart pre-music. Mm -hmm. I don't really understand why she said that. Well, I could theorize, but I won't. You know, she liked the romantic. Yeah, Rachmaninoff, good. And, exactly. And people uh, tried to imitate that. And there's been a movement among people who take her ideas seriously to strip down to the core philosophy and recognize that people differ in their tastes. They differ in their context. You know, there's going to be a whole variety of human experience, and that doesn't make the world not exist. That doesn't make living to be happy wrong. One thing that people bring up a lot is that at the end of Ayn Rand's life, um, she was uh, quite ill and, and maybe not quite as flush as she had been in other times, and she wound up on Medicare and Social Security, which, of course, seemed to be the kinds of programs that she would most vigorously object to. What do you make of that? I'm not sure that she wasn't as flush. I'm not quite sure where that implication's been drawn. Mm. Um, I don't recall that in any of the major bi biographies I've read. Rand thought, if you're living in an economy where the government's taxing the heck out of you, and you can get some benefit out of it, there's nothing wrong with doing that. You should fight it. You should fight it, she said. You shouldn't say, oh, well, this is the most wonderful system, or I love Social Security. It's a, oh, I love it. It's wonderful we have this Ponzi scheme. No, but if it's there, you've been taxed for it, you've been contributing to this whole system by force, can't you get some back? So it, It's it, not contrary to her ideas to have taken those benefits. She deserves some benefits. She paid a ton of taxes. So uh, among political leaders that you do see right now, I mean, who is the true Randian? Is it Ted Cruz? Is it Paul Ryan? Is it, it sounds like it's not really Trump. Who's closer? Mm -hmm. um, well, there are some more, I mean, politically, we're just talking about here politically, people that are more libertarian. I suppose Rand Paul, uh, there's a representative from uh, Michigan, Justin Amash, who's quite libertarian. There aren't a lot of people like that. Paul Ryan seems to know what the theory of the free market is. Mm. Now, as a speaker, what he's been is an excellent compromiser and a coalition builder, and he doesn't seem to be driving hard in a uh, – driving really hard to deregulate the economy, to reduce the tax level. Those aren't things that are major, major uh, things that he's been working on. Is that, uh, we're almost out of time, William Thomas, but is the fact that so few people really kind of meet the standards an indication that the philosophy itself is too rigor rigorous and too dichotomous for actual political life, which is full of compromises? Politics is about dealing with people as they are. And most people don't accept the ideas that Ayn Rand stand for. 
stood for. Most people in America are heavily influenced by the ideas that they self-sacrifice is the best thing in the world and that they want their benefits from the government. That's what they, that's what they think. If you're going to be a successful politician right now, you've got to talk to those beliefs. William Thomas, it's been so great to end the show with someone who uh, can show us what a, what a true Ayn Rand adherent and believer sounds like. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us. We also talked to Jennifer Burns, uh, author of Goddess of the Market, Ayn Rand and the American Right. And of course, Stephen Metcalf, one of two Stephen Metcalfs we are always very excited to have on our show. So uh, thanks to everybody who helped out today, uh, to Betsy Kaplan and Kion Wolf in particular, and we'll be with you again tomorrow with something very different. Where child sweatshop labor is permitted far and wide And health inspectors never come I'm standing by your side Ayn Rand is by your side Roses are red, violets are blue Finish this poem yourself, you despicable, unindustrious deadbeat! (laughs) Pah!